Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. The book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter number 2. The book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter number 2. We are continuing with this series now on our last couple of messages. And we've worked hard at trying to define our terms to understand where the text came from. To understand the corruptions that came in from a man by the name of Origen and how Origen's influence had truly corrupted uh, a side text and that we had two lines of text. We had the Alexandrian text, which was the corrupted text from Alexandria and from Origen, and we had the Antiochian text, the majority text, the, the true text that had been transferred and carried through the centuries. And these two line of text have been the battleground, and we understand that both of them are different, that the majority text has always been considered the true text of the Bible, received by God's people, whereas the other text has been the text from those who do not support the view of the Bible, who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, meaning that He is God and that His finished work on Calvary was enough, and that it's been a battleground of ideologies. It's been a battleground for all of those years. We took our time to explain how Finally, Origen's influence seemed to have been broken as a man by the name of Erasmus took time and scholarship and true um, work and was able to show his work and was able to prove to people what the true text says. And then as the um, Byzantinian Antioch text began to flood into Europe, um, because of the Muslim invasion of Constantinople, Byzantinium, that what happened is that everyone had access to the good text and they were able to compare it for themselves. So by the time the authorized version came up, it came from people who had rejected the Alexandrian text, who had recognized that it was corrupt and had set it aside. And so we were able to have a Bible put together with the correct text, with correct scholarship, and as we explained last week, just a uh, a system of trying to make sure that it was correctly interpreted or correctly translated and had a system of checks and balances to make sure that it was done. And now as we have finished this, immediately we have a man who is working hard to bring the corruptions of origin back into the English Bible. So to start off with, let's look in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and notice with me in verse number 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And if you have a mark in things in your Bible, would you mark 
two phrases that we're going to put together here. Notice it says, ye received it. And what is this it? The word of God. So here we see the people that received Paul's writings. They received it as the word of God. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just asking that once again, you would put your touch and your anointing on this, that we could have an understanding, kind of see what's going on, see that it is a spiritual battle that is occurring, and that we could have confidence that the Bible that you gave us indeed is the Word of God. Thank you again for this privilege. Let it be understandable. Let it be clear. Be with my mouth. Be with my thoughts. Be with my tongue. Lord, you do this and glorify your own name and glorify your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 is a very powerful verse. Notice again what it says. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which you have heard in us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively, effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now let's notice some couple things of this verse. The Apostle Paul believed that when he sent a letter, that it was not his words, but they, the words, were the very word of God. Now that's pretty amazing. As Paul is writing this, he is writing to the church of Thessalonica, and he's saying that we're thankful that when you received it, you received it as the very word of God. Now as Paul being egotistical saying, hey, I just wrote to you the word of God. No, he's understanding that God is behind it. He understands that God is the force behind it and that, you know, it's probably to him a very humbling thing that as God is using me to write the very word of God. It didn't happen that, you know, I'm bored today. I'm going to write God's word. He said, as I was writing to you, God is using this circumstance to get across his word and to teach us some things. And you recognized it as God's word, and I'm recognizing that this is God's word. This is something different than Paul. This is something that's coming from God. Now, when they, the church of Thessalonica, received the word of God from us, Paul, it was the word of God. Now, just because they received it doesn't make it the word of God, but they received it understanding it was the word of God. The church is reading this and they said, you know what? We know Paul. We love Paul. But this is something different. God did something different with this. And this is a powerful verse. Satan sets out to try to make the word of God ineffectual. That's what Satan's job is. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Yea, hath God said. The very thing that Satan has tried to do from the very beginning is take away the power and the effectual working of God's word in anyone's life. Now, do you think Satan has given up that goal? Did he think, well, you know, I lost? No. Did it work for Eve? Yes. Will it continue to work with men because we could be deceived? Yes, absolutely. Satan knows that God's word has power to change lives. So he wants to turn away people from God's word. He wants to make it so it's ineffective. Satan wants to convince people that they are just words, but not God's words. Are there plenty of people who read God's word who are not saved? Yes. Are there professors who read their Bible who probably know their Bible better than you? Yes. Who don't follow after God? Yes. Yes, because they see this as a history book. 
as a poetry book, as a literature book. They see it as just words on a page, but they do not see it as God's word. And what has happened is that it's ineffectual in those people's lives. Now with that, let's draw some conclusions. <laughs> if you do not believe it's God's word, it will not affect your life. Remember, this is not just any kind of book. You don't read this like a blog. You don't read it like a history book. You don't read it like a poetry book. You read it differently because it's God's word. And if you truly believe this is God's word, then God's word is going to change you. But if you don't believe it's God's word, it will not affect you. That's why people could sit in church and we could say, this is what God says. And they shrug their shoulders. That's nice. Why doesn't it do anything in their life? Because they don't believe it's God's word. Uh-huh, I believe it's God's word. If you believe it's God's word, you would have let it change you. God did not give us his word to read it. Oh, he gave it to us to read it so we would obey it. Just to read God's word doesn't work. You have to obey it. This is the idea. If you believe it's God's word, you will respond to it like God's word. God didn't give us the Bible just to read it. I know plenty of people who said, I read the Bible and I didn't get anything from it. I believe you. Because they don't believe it's God's word. God didn't give us his word to memorize it. He gave us his word to memorize it so we would obey it. God didn't give us his word to study it. He gave us his word to study and obey it. He didn't give us his word to preach it. He gave us his word to preach it so people can obey. This is the whole point. If it is God's word and God gave it to us, we should obey it as if it's God's word. And those that do not believe it's God's word is ineffectual. Now, this it means that every person has to come to a choice. Is it God's word or is it not? If it's God's word, then I should obey it. If it's not God's word, then I have to explain it away. So if someone doesn't believe it's God's word, you could hear it and read it and study it, but you'll end up no better than when you start it because it won't change you. By the way, that's Satan's goal. He wants you. He doesn't care if you read your Bible. He doesn't care if you memorize scripture. He doesn't care if you study it, just as long as you don't obey it. That's pretty powerful. You know Adolf Hitler knew more, hit, more scripture than you do? He quoted scripture all the time. Why didn't it do a work? He didn't believe it was God's word. It was just something to use. This is a big deal. If you believe it's God's word, you will obey it. You will allow it to change your life. Now, if you don't, you have to explain it away. You'll have to find some way to disregard it. You have to have some way to say, well, it's not really God's word. Because if it was God's word, you'd have to obey it. People will explain it away. They'll say things, well, the Greek says, or some older manuscript says. That's just their way of saying, well, this is the reason why I don't have to obey God. Ah, it's not really God's word. This part's not God's word. And people do it all the time. It's called footnotes. It's called preaching. People do it all the time. But if we believe it's God's word, then we will allow it to change us.
So when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to matter what version you disobeyed. Pick any version. If you don't believe it's God's word, it doesn't matter what version it is. You won't obey it. That's a big deal. We're going to be held accountable to the Bible. And we're going to be judged by the Bible about how well we obeyed it. We will stand before a real living God. And how are you going to explain it away? What are you going to tell him at that day? This is a big deal. Because if we believe it's God's word, then we're going to allow it to change us. Again, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Notice what it says. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Believe what? Believe it's God's word. Verse 13 states that God's word will effectually, I like that word, effectually, it will make an effect, it will have an effectual work in you if you believe it's God's word. This is why it's so important. Because this is the battleground. Satan does not mind if you just read the Bible, period. He just doesn't want it to change you. He doesn't want you to be drawn close to it. This is a big deal. There are plenty of people who study it and will even ask questions and whatnot. They don't care. I want to know more about it. But if you don't believe it's God's word, it will not change you. And if you're not obeying it, it's because you don't believe it's God's word. Uh Uh-huh. Well, argue with the Bible, not me. This is a big deal. So with that being a big deal, let's go ahead and cover some history now. We had left up in 1611 where God had given the authorized version and we're thankful for the process that God gave. But here we start seeing critical text following the publishing of the authorized version. For 300 years since the first publication of the Greek text, Texas Receptus of Erasmus, a large number of New Testament manuscripts have come to light. Meaning archaeologists and people who studied have begun to find even more manuscripts. By the way, they say this in colleges and whatnot as an idea that they want to say, well, your Bible's wrong. Since the publishing of the Bible, that your authorized version, we found a whole lot more manuscripts. Well, okay, great. What they want to imply by that is that our Bible is wrong. What they do not tell you is that all of them match what the Bible says. Overwhelming majority backs up, hey, this Bible's correct after all. We don't care. You go ahead and find whatever you want. It's going to match up with this if it's the correct text. That's pretty amazing. Of the manuscripts, we have over 5,000 existing manuscripts and way over 90% agree with our authorized version. So they could go ahead and try to twist it if they want. Well, we have found a whole lot of manuscripts. We'll tell the rest of the story. They match the Bible. That's a wonderful thing. We're not believing in a fairy tale and we don't have to be worried about what the scholars have to say about this. A very, very, very small group does not support or agree with the authorized version. Here's a brief overview of some of the manuscripts that disagree with the majority text. 
The king of England was given a codex called Alexandrius in 1627. So shortly after the publishing of the authorized version, someone came up, hey king, guess what? We found this manuscript. Hey, look it for yourself. And it happened to be called Codex Alexandrius. Now, for those of you who noticed the root word, what does the root word of it say? Alexandria. So is that already something we're going to be able to trust? Nope, not at all. So the first critical text of the Bible was published in 1631 by Carl Lockman. A critical text will have little notes in the margins or at the bottom of the page that ends up casting doubt upon the text. Some of you have Bibles with footnotes that do the same thing. That's a critical text that will say, well, this manuscript say, the oldest manuscript said, this should have been rendered this way. The Greek says this. It is a criticism of the text and a criticism of the translation. The arrival in England of an ancient, well-preserved, almost complete manuscript of the Bible called Codex Alexandrian, uh, Alexandrianus caused some sensation among the scholars, meaning they started to get to buzz. Oh, this is great. And so everyone grew excited about going to the libraries and museums of the world to try to find more old and ancient manuscripts that would supposedly straighten out the authorized version. And so now the scholars start getting involved and they start searching all these things. We got to find proof. Our goal is to find some evidence that the Bible is wrong. And it became such a fervor and people were searching all over to find it. The first product of this type of operation was called the Computation Polygot Bible. In this Bible, it was a multi-columnar Bible with the Old Testament in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, and the New Testament in the Latin Vulgate and the Greek. So basically, it's a multi-column Bible in different languages so people could kind of look with the idea that they had is that they wanted to show that the, that uh, there was different text that you could look at. The Antwerp polyglot added the Syriac version to those listed above. In 1645, there was the Paris polyglot which added an Arabic version, a Latin translation of the Arabic version, and the Samaritan Pentateuch. So again, people are starting to get into this fancy, hey, we want to show that we're smart too, let's look at our things, and the idea is that they want to try to cast doubt upon God's word. In 1657, I uh, had it the London polygraph that had some critical notes by Edmund Castell and included some nine languages. It's a lot. Bishop John Felt, <laughs> had put one out in 1675. He was a bishop in Oxford. Then what happens is that everyone starts getting bored and everyone has to get a critical text. John Mill, 1707. The Bingle in 1734. The Weistein in 1751. Then Griesbach put out three editions of a critical received text in 1777, 1801, and 1805. He was the first man to directly challenge the authority of Texas Receptus and call into question the validity of the authorized version. Now, up to this time, they had just put little snide comments little footnotes to try to get him. He was the first one to basically shout out loud, listen here, this Bible is wrong, wrong. And he was the first one to start the march against the authorized version. Which is going to bring us to a man by the name of Tischendorf. <clears throat> Not since Origen and Jerome was there a man with such a horrible influence on the Bible. 
He graduated with a degree in theology from Leipzig University. He dedicated his life to traveling the world in search of biblical manuscripts and publishing his findings. Now, when we say he dedicated his world, meaning this is his full-time job. This is what he did. He had permission to go throughout the world looking for libraries, looking for some text that he could... uh, put out to disprove the authorized version. His legacy was a vast amount of published materials in the form of manuscripts and Greek text. His most notable achievement was the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus. And the wonderful thing is he wrote so much that we could pretty much give his account of what happened. The Alexandrian manuscript and the Sinai manuscript are the sole basis of which the so-called scholars began their attempt to overthrow the authorized version in the 1800s. So we have a vast majority text that agree with the authorized Bible. We're going to have three, these two namely, three that disagree with each other and disagree with the text that the scholars are going to get the rest of the modern Bibles off of. And so this is an important story to understand where the Sinai manuscript came, the Codex Sinaiticus, where did it come from? Because if they're going to use that as the text for the NIV, RSV, American Standard, ESV, the M-I-C-K-Y, M-O-U-S-C, and every other version that's out there, all comes from these, we should probably know a little bit where they came from. So Tischendorf, he discovered 18 uncial manuscripts. He discovered six minuscule. Now, you know what those are now. We defined our terms earlier. (laughs) He edited for the first time some 25 fragmentary uncial manuscripts. He re-edited 11 more uncial manuscripts. He transcribed an additional four. All I'm doing is saying that this guy did a lot of work. He understood. He was looking at manuscripts. He collated 20 more. He published eight editions of the Greek New Testament text. He published four editions of the Latin text using both Old Latin and the Vulgate. He put together four editions of the Greek Old Testament. He published text of several apocryphal writings. So again, we're getting some background. This is a guy who dedicated himself to finding manuscripts. And he was looking all over trying to find the manuscripts. Here was his method of translating Greek text. So what is his purpose? How does he do this? When Tischendorf took 40 manuscripts that go with the thousands that the King James translators used and came across one manuscript that went against the King James, he would put a note in the text or margin of the Greek text and say that the authorized version should be questioned here. So again, think about this. You have... He had 40 texts that he was using that all matched what our Bible said. He had one that disagreed. He would write in his Bible, we have an older text that disagree. This text should be questioned here. Because one disagreed with the majority. This is his his method. This is how he did it. As long as he could find one manuscript that disagreed, he would write that uh, new manuscript based off that one and bring in a question. Here's his three-point system. Here's the three points, the three things that he believed in that helped his view of how he translated the Bible. First of all, he was a naturalist. What does that mean? He treated the Bible the same way as other Greek classical literature. What does that mean? He believed that the Bible was no more inspired than Homer's Iliad. 
He said that the Greek text of the Iliad as Homer's or um, Herodotus's histories, that the Bible, all it is, is just a classical book. And that's how we need to treat it. Well, remember what we said before in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2? That we need to receive the word of God. And if we allow us to believe the word of God, it's going to have effectual working. He didn't believe the word of God. So even though he studied all of this, it didn't make an effect on him. He was just trying to find uh, uh, manuscripts because he didn't believe the Bible, but he believed it was good literature. He didn't believe the original writings or any copies thereof were inspired of God. So here's a man who rejected the inspiration of God. They believed they were the works of man who believed in God or believed in Jesus, but really God didn't write this. It was just some delusional person. But it's good writing, so let's go ahead and do something with it. So, by the way, here's a guy who made his living working on a Bible project who he didn't believe that God gave him the word. So this is already a trustworthy source, right? Number two, he accepted the theory produced like by men like Griesbach that the oldest manuscript must be the best. So when the King James translators worked, all of their manuscripts dated from 425 AD and onward. The Codex Alexandrius and the Codex Sinaiticus were dated in the 300s AD, meaning that they were older than anything that the authorized users had. So Tischendorf assumed that the Codex Sinaiticus must be better because it's older. By the way, some of you have Bibles that will have this. Older manuscripts say. By the way, what's the older manuscript? This. So just so you know, when the scholars say the oldest manuscripts. Now let's cover this. Is it true that the oldest manuscripts are the best? Well, we understand that before we had things in books, we had things in scrolls. But let's just say that an earthquake happens, volcano happens, and my study library is buried. And then archaeologists and the scholars come and dig up my office hundreds of years later, and they go through and say, oh, look, a well-preserved museum, a well-preserved library, wonderful. Hey, let's see what Bible he used. And they start looking in my shelf. And on my shelf, I've got several different things. I have a Bible here that I go through every couple of years. And so I keep my old Bibles and they're all falling apart. And I've even got the one when I was a kid, when I was reading when I was like six or seven years old. I still have that one. And have it and it's all pages are all coming out. And one of those ones where <laughs> the things are falling apart. And one of the reasons why I switched to here is this little leather, pleather, rubber Bible thing. Is this cover is going to outlast everyone. And it's going to just kind of keep it from falling apart. And then in my library, I have an NIV that's inside of its packaging. And so when the scholars come and the archaeologists come, oh, I wonder what Bible he used. Are they going to assume that the NIV still in its packaging is the Bible I used all the time? No. Because it's still in pristine state. Now, I've got plenty of Bibles that are younger or younger than that because I go through Bibles all the time. Why is I NIV older than anything else? Because I didn't use it. 
That's where the oldest is. And so back in the days of the scrolls, because they didn't have printing presses and people didn't write by hand and there wasn't a lot of Bibles out there, people had to use what they had. And what happens if you read your Bible every day like you should? The scroll begins to fall apart. And so why, don't, why do we have a hard time finding older manuscripts still intact? Because the good ones were used up. The older ones were rejected. And we're going to see this about Codex Sinaiticus. However, this is what Tischendorf believed. The oldest manuscripts must be the best. Because they're older. And this is what people like Griesbach began to propagate and Tischendorf bought into it. So we start off that he's a naturalist, meaning that he does not believe in the inspiration of God. Then number two, we be he believes that the oldest is the best. And if you could find the oldest manuscript, you're going to have the best manuscript to give a copy of the Bible from. There's a third thing about Tischendorf is that he was mesmerized by Codex Sinaiticus. Mesmerized by this document. So much so that his 8th edition of the Greek New Testament was based almost entirely on this manuscript. Meaning that when he translated a Greek New Testament, the one manuscript that he used was this Codex Sinaiticus. So much so that even those that follow him said, well, you know, he really used it way too much. He should have used some other sources to kind of balance that out. It was just way too heavy on that one manuscript. So let's cover the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus. Now again, Tischendorf wrote quite a bit and he told his own tale. This is basically his story of how he found Codex Sinaiticus. So I don't have to make things up. We can just see what he has to say about it. So King Frederick Augustus of Saxony gave Tischendorf a bunch of money to go collect manuscripts so that his country would have them in their museum. Remember at this time, there was a fervor of, of manuscripts and they wanted to put them in their museums because it picks up the tourist trade and fill up the hotels and everyone come see our manuscript on display. So Saxony, um, sorry, uh, Frederick Augustus gave Tischendorf, hey, go find these manuscripts, bring them back, and then we can pick up our tourism. Great, wonderful. If you're going to give me money to go research, I'll take it, sure. In May of 1844, Tischendorf visited the monastery of St. Catherine at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, may I pause? This is the location of what the Catholics say is Mount Sinai. Um, there was a pope whose mother wanted very much to have a... Have a um, monastery named after her. So they picked a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula and called it Sinai and put up a tourist center and a monastery. The real Sinai Peninsula or Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's found in what we call Saudi Arabia, which is quite a difference, uh, difference away. However, that's neither here nor there. So the Catholics put up this big monastery. Tischendorf goes and visits this Catholic monastery in 1844. While he was there, he noticed a basket containing old vellum manuscripts. Now, you guys remember we talked about the different types of manuscripts and what they were written on. We talked about papyrus. We talked about paper. We talked about vellum. Vellum is made out of the uh, skins of lambs, of calves. And so here's a basket that has a whole bunch of vellum manuscripts. The monks told him that they used this rubbish to kindle their fires for baking bread and that they'd already burnt two full baskets already. 
So Tischendorf comes in and goes, you know, minding those business, turns around. Hey, guys, what you doing? Hey, what's that? Oh, it's some trash that we're burning. Trash, huh? Hmm. Yeah, we've already burnt two baskets. Really? Huh. Oh, starts looking over. And uh, his behavior started to get the... Uh, get the Catholic monks a little suspicious. Tischendorf took a look at the basket and said there was 129 leaves of a Greek Old Testament. Now, that should cause some questions in your mind. <laughs> the Old Testament in the preserved text is written in what language class? Hebrew. Hebrew. So if you start thinking of a Greek Old Testament, immediately you should start thinking that it came from Alexandria, because we had covered a whole class on this. And if a Greek Old Testament came from Alexandria, who was the person that, that came from? Origen. Tischendorf is going to revive Origen's influence all over again. After it worked so hard to get Origen's influence out of the Bible... Tischendorf is going to reintroduce it back into the world after it had already been rejected. Tischendorf looked at the material into the wastebasket and began to go excited. Oh, that's wonderful. That's, oh, this is great. Oh, making a big deal of it, the monks started looking at him and going, what's wrong with this guy? When he asked, hey, 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 can, you guys are burning that. Can, can I take that? And they go, no, 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 you can't have it. But you're burning it. No, no, it's ours. You can't have it. Well, well, can I look at it, guys? Can I spend some time? They eventually allowed him to take 43 leaves, which contained portions of the first Chronicles, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, and Esther. Tischendorf begged them, please don't burn anymore. Hey, guys, it's my last day of vacation. I got to go back. Thank you for letting me have these. Don't burn the rest of these, okay? Please don't. I know you're throwing them away. Just put them up on the shelf somewhere. I want to come back, okay? Just don't burn them. Okay. <laughs> There's a <laughs> proverb for this. Proverbs 20, 14. It is not. It is not, saith the buyer. But when he has gone his way, he boasteth. Hey, man, it's just trash. It's fine. It's all right. Don't get rid of it, okay? <sighs> He's so excited. It's kind of like some of you hitting a garage sale. Oh, 25 cents. Look at this. This is a treasure. It's wonderful. <laughs> It's what Tischendorf said. Oh, no, no. I know it's garbage. It's fine. But uh, can I have your garbage? I, it doesn't matter. No, no. Nobody would like it except for me. In 1847 or 6, Tischendorf published the contents of those 43 leaves and he named them the Codex Frederico Augustinus in honor of his patron. Remember the guy who gave him money. Well, I found a great discovery. Let me name it after the guy so he could give me more money so I could go out and do the same thing. He was careful not to tell anyone the exact location of his find because he didn't want anyone to go get it. It's mine, mine. Oh, I, I can't reveal my source. <laughs> he returned to the monastery in 1853, uh, nine years later. So he had to get some money, book the tour, get permission to go. But he received nothing. The, the monks are like, nope, you can't have it. Uh, they, they started to say, you know, we remember you. You were really excited for these things. Nope, you can't have them. They're ours. Nope. The monks were still very suspicious of them. In 1856, Tischendorf approached Tsar Alexander II of Russia, the patron and protector of the Orthodox Church, meaning the Russian Orthodox Church. 
So he's in charge, goes up to the czar and says, hey, you want to make a name for yourself? I know somewhere if you pay me, I can go get some manuscripts and you'll be famous. Okay. In January 1856, he returned to the monastery with the blessing of the czar. He cautiously approached the steward on the last day of a stay and showed them a copy of his discovery from 12 years earlier. He went to the guy who was in charge of the monastery. He spent his whole stay there, not, you know, not bring it up. Finally, the last day, hey, the last time I was here, I found a great discovery. You recognize something like this? And to a surprise and joy, the monk produced the manuscript wrapped in a red cloth. Here you go. I thought you would like this. Here you go. Well, that's kind of amazing find, right? The the uh, steward was prepared for Tischendorf's request, already had it available, wrapped up in a nice little present. Recognizing this to be the sought-after manuscript, Tischendorf received permission to examine the manuscript that night in his room. Meaning he could not have it. He wasn't allowed to have the manuscript. But you could look over it overnight. This is still ours. And so he stayed up all night so excited. He wanted to make his own copy of the Epistle of Barnabas. So here's this guy. I found a great Bible. Oh, nobody knows about this Bible. It's so wonderful. And just to prove it, I'm going to write one of the books out of the Bible and copy it down so everyone know I found it. The Epistle of Barnabas. Already you could tell that this guy does not have the right text. But he's so excited and he speaks about the the giddiness of it. Just, oh, this is so wonderful. And you know, almost like the kid with a flashlight in his bed at night with the, you know, trying to finish reading his book. He's so excited. I can't wait. This is good. His request to purchase the manuscript was refused. Sorry, it's not for sale. You can't have it. You could look at it, but you can't have it. It's not for sale. So in Cairo, Tischendorf goes and visits a small monastery in the city that was also operated by the same monks of Mount Sinai. It just so happened that the abbot of the monastery of St. Catherine happened to be in Cairo and he says, hey man, you have this great manuscript up in your monastery. Do you mind if I take some time to spend time with it, to copy it. And so the abbot said, oh sure, we could do that. And so they went ahead and sent for Bedouin Campbell, uh, uh, camel messengers to go up to the Sinai uh, Cathedral or Monastery to bring it back down to Cairo. When Tischendorf got it back in his hands, the abbot allowed Tischendorf access to the manuscript one section at a time. So if you could imagine, he says, all right, here's a section. You go ahead and spend some time with this. When you're done, bring it back to me. I'll give you another section. That way, Tischendorf just didn't walk off with it. And so Tischendorf, with the help of two assistants, was able to copy it down in two months. So in two months, he was writing it down. Someone would turn the page. He would write it down and just working as hard as he could to quickly write it down. Now let me pause. How many of you are good enough writers that you don't make any mistakes when you are copying down a text for yourself? Especially when you're in a hurry. So he's in a hurry and he's trying to write down as quickly as I can. Turn the page. Turn the page. All right, here's another one. Two months he spent doing that, trying to get a, uh, a copy written down for himself. Afterwards, there was a dispute over the election of the new Archbishop of Sinai. So basically, there's going to be a new person in charge. Now, the Bible way of doing this is quite different than their way of doing it. Here, they're going to have an election. Who's going to be in charge of the church? Who's going to be in charge of the monastery? We're going to have an election. 
And this enabled Tischendorf to suggest to the monks that the, this great and valuable manuscript might be in danger if the wrong side won. And so <laughs> there was this uh, election coming up. Tischendorf kind of hinted to these guys, hey, if you allow me to, I can make sure the guy that you want to be in charge gets elected. Okay? He talked them into donating the manuscript to the Tsar of Russia. In exchange, the Tsar of Russia would allow the person they wanted to be archbishop to get the job. That's always a good biblical spiritual way of getting a person in charge, right? So, Tischendorf finally got this manuscript in Russia where he could spend time with it. In 1862, Tischendorf took the Kodak Sinaiticus to St. Petersburg. At Leipzig, he supervised its printing and its 304 volume copies. In 1869, the Tsar gave Tischendorf 9,000 rubles and bestowed several honors and gave him a silver shrine for getting this great manuscript and getting it into the hands of the Russian people. So now the whole world could benefit from Tischendorf's discovery. The manuscript remained in Russia until after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. It was finally sold by the communist government to the British Museum in 1933 for uh, ten or a hundred thousand pounds. Now the communists do not believe in Christianity or the things, but they're willing to sell the Bible to someone who might because they need the money. It's kind of like the Seven Day Adventist. They think that Sunday is the mark of the beast, but they're willing to rent out their church to other Christians on Sunday and let them take the mark. <laughs> so <laughs> all of the corrupt Alexandrian text are going to have four things in common. Remember that there's uh, three main Alexandrian texts. Codex Alexandrius, Codex Sinaiticus, and Codex Vaticanus. All these corrupt Alexandrian texts are going to have four things in common. Here are the four things. All of them are dated after the conversion of Emperor Constantine. This is why we took time with our history later on. That they all came after Constantine, where Constantine made the um, official religion of the Roman Empire Christianity. Whereas before, Christians were uh, being persecuted by the Roman government. And so we talked about the conversion of Constantine and why that is a big deal. Then we also, number two, they're all written on vellum parchment. Remember, we talked about the different parchments. And that vellum is very, very expensive. Remember, we talked about paper being expensive. That in the Roman days, that one piece of paper was a month's wage for a Roman soldier. Well, vellum is going to be very, very expensive and out of the reach of the ordinary Christians of the day. That means ordinary Christians wouldn't have access to this Bible. In addition, they're all written in literary hand rather than the common cursive hand. That meant that some artists, I know some calligraphers are out there, take their time to make it large and flowy and write all the words instead of the normal writing that someone would write to get the Word of God. Remember, there wasn't a lot of Word of God. There wasn't a lot of paper. And so they're trying to write as quickly as they can and squeeze everything as they can so people could have a copy of the Bible for themselves. This was not written in that way. It's written to be nice, flowy, flashy, expensive. The only persons that could have written these manuscripts were the scholastic types. The ones who had to take their time and to do it in such a way that it would be very beautiful to look at. 
And then every one of the fairly complete codexes of Vaticanus, Sinaicus, and Alexandrius contain apocryphal books and pseudographical books. So again, here's the three corrupt, and they have... <laughs> In addition, these extra books. Pseudographical books are books that claim to be written by the apostles, but were obviously not. So, as we're starting to think about this, and put this together, these four things that have in common, let's, let's just put this together. If we had a book today that claimed to be a Bible... And was written in a highly technical language rather than the language that normal people could read. And cost $50,000. And, <coughs> sorry, contained Bell and the Dragon and Paul's letter to Pontius Pilate and the Epistle of Barnabas. You would know that this was not a Bible. It was obvious corrupt. And it was so obvious that here are people that had this text, they rejected it, had it sitting on a shelf for years and years and years and hundreds of years. Till finally they said, we need to make space, let's throw it in the trash. That's all it's good for is trash until some scholar comes up. Oh, oh, so excited. Oh, please don't burn it. Don't throw it away. Oh, I got to save this, but it's trash. No, you don't understand what... A, oh, yeah, I know it's trash. Please don't get rid of it. And he's excited because something that no one for centuries would use. In fact, by the 1800s, it was almost a millennia and a half old. And because no one would use it. So one of the three manuscripts where people use to translate the modern Bibles comes from the founder's own words, something that was being burned for trash. Is that a good way to find a Bible manuscript that's going to correct all the other Bibles and show the other Bibles what's right? Probably not. These three manuscripts are the basis of the Greek text produced by Westcott and Hort, who we will speak about next week, and was used by the translators of the modern versions to overthrow the King James Bible. And all these other versions have the purpose of saying the authorized version is wrong. Tischendorf is responsible for the reintroduction of the Alexandrian line of corruption into the Bible. As we had discussed earlier, that there was a process to get rid of all of the corruptions and it had successfully gotten out. Now this guy is taking time to put it back in. For what reason? Why? Well, his influence is right up there with Origen and Jerome on how we got these Bibles that people can't trust. Remember 1 Thessalonians 2.13 where we read, For this cause thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard in us, you received it not as the word of men, but as is truth, the word of God which effectively worketh also in you that believe. Remember that if you believe this is the word of God, you're going to obey it. You're going to allow it to change you. But if you do not believe it's the word of God, you will not obey it. There's no other choice. There's no middle ground. If you're not obeying the word of God, 
It's because you don't believe it. And that's what Satan wants to do. He is trying to convince people that your Bible is untrustworthy. And that all Bibles are untrustworthy. And that they're just a version. They're just a literary. And this is what people believe today. This is why this is an important battle. Because it's a discussion. Is it God's word? And if it is God's word. We're going to allow God's word to work in us. And allow God's word to change us. This is why it is important. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.